0: So this is a season of Advent, as most of you know, and as Carly just prayed, the season leading up to Christmas, and each year in this season we take a break from whatever we're going through uh, to do a series called Expectant. Um, Advent means arrival or coming, and the Advent season has to do with expecting, waiting, longing for the arrival of Jesus. Now, you would think that since Advent is leading up to Christmas, this um, has to do with the first coming of Jesus, and that's typically how Advent is um, celebrated today. But actually, in the history of the church, it's often been a time to focus on and long for the second coming of Jesus, for Jesus to come in righteousness and bring about his kingdom that is filled with righteousness um, and to, to dwell with us, as Carly just prayed. And that's kind of what what you use this time for. It's a built-in time on the calendar every year for us to reflect on, long for, um, train ourselves a bit more to live in light of what God is doing and what God is bringing for us. The eternal hope of God's people. And uh, we need this because we live in a society that is very busy, very distracted. We tend to be very narrow sighted, only looking at what is in front of us. We are very wealthy and comfortable and looking far out in the future or perhaps not far out in the future, but looking ahead to what God has for us and living in light of that and hoping in that is not something we naturally do very well. We're naturally just looking right in front of us and and being distracted by all the things in front of us. So we, we do this every year and we're going to take the next few weeks to to do that, And this year, we're going to go back to what we did the first year that we did this series in 2017 um, and be in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible. I actually don't know how far we're going to make it, but we're going to start in, in chapter 21 today and cover the first four verses. So if you want to turn there. Uh, before we jump in, let me just set up the book of Revelation because as you might know, the book of Revelation is a unique book. The opening couple verses of the book help us get situated. It says this, so this is in chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So That's where the book gets its name. Revelation means making known or revealing. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. God made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God, and to the testimony of jesus christ even to all that he saw so in short the book of revelation is a series of visions that god the father through jesus christ gives to john as the name revelation implies these visions reveal things and they do so in a couple ways first These visions reveal what is to come in the future. There is a future aspect to much of what is in Revelation. Now, there's disagreement on how much of Revelation is in the future, or at least in our future, or how much was just in the future of those who originally read it. We're not going to get into all that today. But secondly, these visions reveal what is occurring, what is happening even now in the spiritual, heavenly realm. Revelation pulls back the curtains to help us see what life is really like, what the true state of reality, what God is up to, even now, in ways that we don't see with our physical eyes, but we will one day. Revelation helps us open our eyes to the presence of spiritual beings and forces, both good and evil, the active work of God, even now, to bring about a certain conclusion. There is more to reality than our eyes see. And even though we don't see it right now, we will, we will do one day. And it is just as real as what we see. God is on the throne. God is reigning and ruling on the throne, as Revelation shows us. Jesus, the Lamb, has died and resurre- been resurrected and freeing, has freed us from our sins. Every knee will one day bow before him, and his kingdom is coming on earth as it is even now in heaven. These and other realities Revelation opens our eyes to see are truly realities, just as real as the restaurant across the street. Revelation awakens us from our narrow vision of life to see the bigger picture, to see the bigger story. And so we're going to be in chapters 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the book, and they are unique in part because pretty much everyone agrees what they are talking about. Maybe not all the details, but at least the the big picture. Pretty much everyone agrees that they refer to the future that is still in front of us today. When Jesus returns and he ushers, ushers in his new creation, so we're going to be there, and we're going to use this to help, um, help help us long for what is coming. I don't know if you have this experience, but when you have a vacation coming up or something exciting coming up, I tend to not think about it until it's like until we're there, like morning of we're leaving. But I tend to stay pretty busy distracted, focusing on all the other things, until we get up to that, I don't allow myself to really get excited and long for it until, boom, day of, we're, we're in the car or we're on the plane. Well, this is how many of us tend to approach the hope that is ours in Christ. We know that this exciting thing is coming, this good thing is coming, we know that God has eternal life planned for us, a life of great joy and satisfaction, a life where all is right. There's no tears and pain and loss. Righteousness and justice flourish. We're in the presence of God, a life that is full of joys and delights and pleasures, a life that never ends. And yet, we don't really think about it too much right now. Yes, we believe in it, but we don't really live our lives expectantly for it. It perhaps practically makes... Only minor difference in the way we live now. Now, if this is how you approach vacations, that's totally fine. Nothing wrong with that. However, this is not how we are supposed to approach and think about the hope that is ours in Christ. The Bible is clear that we are meant to live our lives right now in light of what is to come. And it's meant to make a difference in the way we live now because we have this hope. And not just when we get older and it appears nearer, and not just when things are hard and we really need this hope, but but always in good days and hard days. So again, one of the goals of this series is just to awaken our hope and longing, cause us to reflect more and more deeply and more often on what the future holds for God's people. And to live in light of that. So let's jump in. We'll go one verse at a time through these first four verses. Revelation 21.1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Now, the first, one of the first things you notice when you start reading Revelation is there's lots of imagery. There's lots of symbolic language. There's lots of metaphors. Sometimes these are explained, tells you, oh, this is what this means, but sometimes they're not. And one of the best helps in understanding Revelation and its images is to notice that many of them come from or first appeared in the Bible somewhere else, especially in the Old Testament. By one count, there were over 400 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation, and that's just the Old Testament. Um, And it makes up 68% of the verses. So if you're reading along 68% 68% of the verses have some reference to the Old Testament. It's very fitting that the last book of the Bible brings together all of the themes and ideas and, and all of this from the rest of the Bible in a way that no other book really does. And that's true here in this first verse. So this phrase, new heavens and new earth, comes from, is drawn from a couple places in Scripture. First, as you probably have already Thought, it's drawn from Genesis 1:1, right? The first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So Revelation 21 is giving us a picture of recreation. Heaven and earth is simply a way to refer to all that has been created, all of creation. Um, earth refers to that which we see around us, that which is all around us and under us. Heaven is everywhere up there, the sky and the universe. Uh, the Greek and Hebrew words for, or word, yeah, words for heavens can refer to either the sky and everything that is up there, or the place where God dwells. So this is a new creation, a new heaven and a new earth. This is a recreation, a new renewed cosmos. But even the phrase "new heavens and new earth" is found earlier in the Bible. So in Isaiah 65, and I'm going to read a little bit longer section here because it, it helps get us situated. Isaiah 65, starting at verse 17, says, For behold, God speaking here, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall along enjoy the work of their hands. Now, what's going on here? Well, Isaiah 65 seems to be speaking of a renewed Jerusalem, or city of God, of that day, rather than a renewed cosmos, which, which we are talking about here. Notice that the people live long here in this passage, but they do still die. This is, it seems, prophetic image-rich language to get across a point that God is going to do a massive transformation. Like when you walk into a child's room that has just been cleaned, you might say, this is a new room. Or you see a house that has gone through through a massive transformation and you say, well, that's a new house. You don't mean they tore it down and built a brand new house, but the transformation was so radical that it is new. In Isaiah, God is promising to create something so radically new In Jerusalem among the people of God that it could be called a new heavens and new earth and yet as with so much of the promises and prophecies that we find in Scripture their fulfillment leaves something to be desired the great hopes and longings for a renewed city a renewed people of God are typically unsatisfying sin and evil are still present We still die, and everything is a bit disappointing. We all know what this is like. Um, Perhaps it's a silly example, but I ordered some pad thai this week, which is one of my favorite meals. And you know how you get excited when you get to eat one of your favorite meals. And I didn't even have to pay for it this time, so it was extra exciting. (laughs) Well, the online options only gave me the choices of medium and spicy. I thought, well, I'm sure medium is doable. Well, it wasn't. My mouth was burning. I had to take a five-minute break every couple bites. By the time I was done, it was cold. And I actually thought, everything in this life is disappointing. (laughs) Nothing fully satisfies. Nothing is as complete and perfect as we want it to be. Go read the book of Ecclesiastes. And so even after the prophecies and promises of Isaiah and, and their fulfillment in time, we get to Revelation, we get to the end of God's word, and we find that God's people are still in need of hope. God's people are still in need of a new heavens and new earth. We are still longing for completion, for perfection. And the vision that we get here of radical renewal is different than all the rest, this isn't just the same thing again. This is something new, as we will see. Now, scholars and students of the Bible differ as to whether this is speaking and whether the Bible is speaking of a completely new creation, with this one wiped away and God starting afresh, or whether this is a radical, renewed creation, something like the transformed bodies that believers will have. Still our bodies, but renewed. So, Paul can use the same word for new when he writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This carries the sense of not starting over from scratch, but being renewed. So, personally, I lean towards the latter because it seems more in line with how God works. Not starting over from scratch, but taking what was good of his creation and, and radically renewing it. But either way, The important thing to see here in this first verse is that our final home and hope is in many ways much like this one, is in many ways resembles the good creation that God began with. It is, in part, it is physical and earthly. It's not up there in the heavens, but here on earth where God created us to live. It's not as disembodied souls, whatever that might mean, but as human beings, bodies and souls, as God created us. The, the reference point that God gives us for imagining what life in that time will be like is imagining this earth. It will be different in many ways, of course, but in all the best ways, it will resemble this earth. The beauty and wonder and creativity of God's varied creation isn't only for this life, but for the next life as well. All of the, th- the pleasures and joys of this life, the, the sights of mountains and oceans and plains and waterfalls, the taste of good food and drink, the smell of seasons, the smell of good food, not too spicy food though, the joys and laughter of being with friends, the thrill of adventure and discovery will surely be a part of that life, but even more so. This is the kind of world that God is preparing us for and preparing for us. If we didn't have this reference point of this world to hope for that world, it would be hard to hope for it. It's hard to hope for a vacation in Hawaii if you don't know that Hawaii is a tropical island with nice beaches and warm weather and lots of fun activities. God wants us to know something of the life to come. And so he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation. The vision continues, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, just in this short verse, there's quite a bit to unpack. There's a few layers of images and metaphors here. So in the Old Testament, Jerusalem was the capital and main city of the people of God, right? where the temple was, where God dwelt among the people, um, where the priests offered sacrifices, also where the kings ruled from. So this is the people of God. Likewise, this new Jerusalem is speaking of a new city of God and His people, a place where God will dwell among His people. That's, That's the point. But we're also told, we're given another image here, we're told that this city is like a bride. We have a city, and we have a bride, and this is made f- clearer later in this chapter when we read um, John is invited to he's uh, invited to come. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Come see this bride, this wife of the Lamb, and then what John sees is the city. You know, it's it's not a bride, like if you're thinking just like a. A woman getting married on her wedding day. It's a city. The city is coming down. So this city is a bride, the bride of the Lamb. So what's going on here? Well, the Lamb in Revelation is Jesus. And we know from Scripture that the church, all God's people, is referred to as the bride of Jesus, the bride of Christ, depicting the intimate, delighting, loving relationship that God invites us into. So this city, this bride, is really a picture of the church as it's joined to Christ in its future perfected state. You can see this even a bit more to point out one other thing as it goes on in chapter 21. The city is then described as having 12 gates with the names of the 12 sons of Israel on the gates and then 12 foundations with the names of the 12 disciples or apostles. And so you get this coming together of the people of God from Old Testament and New Testament, from all time, coming together as this city, this bride. This is the people of God. And look how the people of God are described. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. When you go to a wedding, how is a bride adorned? adorned for her husband she is radiating with beauty and loveliness and purity radiating and that is the picture of the church that's the picture that we are given of the church and christ coming together in that day A couple chapters earlier, this is expanded on. In in 19, verse 7, we read, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb, that is Christ, has come, and his bride, that's the church, has made herself ready. It was granted her, her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And here's one of those places where it actually tells us what the image means. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. So here's what's going on, if you've been able to follow through all of these layers. In this image, in this promise of this time, God's work to redeem a people for himself, to restore rebellious sinners to himself, and to cleanse them and purify them, and bring us into his presence, is finally complete. Paul speaks of this in Ephesians. He said, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. And here's it. it points forward to that day. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is what God has begun to do and is doing for us. He's not only forgiving us, he's also cleansing us, he's also purifying us, and he's preparing us for this glorious reunion, this wedding feast where we are joined with Christ in this way. In that day when the church is presented as the bride of Christ, there will be no more sin. You and I will shine with loveliness and purity and beauty. And in a way that points back to God and his glory. In a way that owes and makes much of His grace and power and wisdom, we will shine with purity and glory, not because we have cleansed ourselves, but because God has made a massive transformation in us. We will be new creations. I think of that verse in Hebrews 12:2, when we are told that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. For the joy that was set before him. And surely this is that joy. When Christ is joined with his church and the church is displayed in the beauty and radiance that God accomplished among us. God will be rejoicing in, delighting in you and I, the church, as he is already now. And if he's rejoicing in us, how could we not be rejoicing in him? Have you ever had someone rejoice in you? It feels pretty good, right? Make much of you. It feels pretty good. Well, this will make us feel honored and favored and loved, but without any hint of pride or selfishness on our part. We will be filled up, know that we are loved beyond what we can imagine, but there will be no pride or selfishness in it. All boasting and glory will go to God and what he's done. We need to remember again and again that this is the big story that we are a part of that is just as real, is more real than any other story. This is the grand story that our lives are about. Being redeemed by the blood of Jesus, brought into fellowship with God, beginning now and then living for all eternity in his new creation, in his presence. One of the reasons that we need to keep this in mind is that it shocks us out of our small mindedness, of our thinking that only the things that we see and touch right now are real. No, there's a new heaven and a new earth to come where God's eternal plan to dwell with his people will be accomplished. This is what verse 3 goes on to say. What Carly uh, read earlier in her prayer. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Now, in a sense, this is what, Old Jerusalem was, was meant to be. The, the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel speaks of Jerusalem, and he says, The name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. It was the place where God was to dwell among the people, and the people could come to God's presence. Jerusalem was called the Holy City. We still call it that today because it's the place where God dwelt among them. You had the tabernacle and then the temple that was built there, reminding them that this is where God dwells. Um, Actually, the word dwelling place there in verse 3 is the word for tabernacle. But old Jerusalem was captured by the Babylonians, and Israel was taken into captivity, and the temple was destroyed. Remember that part about everything in this life having a bit of letdown and disappointment. God's place and God's people did not live up to expectation. But God made it clear that his plan was not finished. And so in Isaiah 7, we get a prophecy often read at Christmas that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. And we get to the New Testament, first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew says that this Prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus, God with us. Jesus, God puts on flesh and blood and lives among humanity. When Jesus departs, he sends the Holy Spirit, whom he says, will dwell with you and will be in you. All of this is revealing God's desire, God's plan to dwell among his people, to make a people for himself, cleanse and purify them, and dwell among them. And Revelation 21 points us to the final act in this play. That line from Hark the Herald Angels Sing gets it right. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God is as pleased to dwell among us as we will be to dwell among him. To dwell with him. It's hard to have joy in the thought of being with God. If It's hard to have joy in God if you don't know that he has joy in you. It's hard to rejoice in him if you think he is begrudging or withdrawn or half-hearted towards you. No, for the joy before him, Jesus endured the cross. Surely it's not without reason that Jesus has the master in in that parable say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We are invited to long for a day when not only will life be better, not only when there will be no tears in all of this, and all of this, yes, it will be a better world, but the day when we will enter into the joy of our Master. Now, you might be asking, what will this be like? What will it be like to be in the presence of God, for God to dwell among us? Revelation 7.15 gives us an idea. For the Lamb that is Jesus, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Now, kind of an interesting idea. You have the lamb being a shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This brings to mind Psalm 23, right? Except Psalm 23, without the valley valley of the shadow of death. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What do shepherds do? Shepherds care for their sheep, provide for their sheep, protect their sheep, lead their sheep, feed their sheep, seek the good of their sheep. This is an image that we are given of what it will be like, what it is even like now to have God as our shepherd, but even more so in that day. And this is the high point of our hope. God dwelling among us in a more near and obvious and intimate and comforting way than we could ever imagine. I I am apt to say as much as it was surprising that God became man, will it not be more surprising for God to dwell among us in that day? As crazy as that idea was for God to put on flesh, how much equally or more crazy and amazing and wonderful will it be for God to dwell among us for all eternity? This relational aspect of our hope, it's not the only thing that Scripture gives us to to hang our hope on and to look forward to, but it is the one that we should be most longing for, most reflecting on, being with our Creator and Savior God. As we try to imagine what this will be like, verse 4 gives us some other um, things to consider. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the place where God dwells, in the place where his rule and reign is all-encompassing, where there's nothing to hold back his goodness and his love, this is the result. No mourning, nor crying, no pain. These will all be former things. Once again, the book of Isaiah gives us a vivid, poetic description of what this will be like of what it's like to go from this life where there is mourning and tears and pain and and loss and death to a life where there is no threat of these things. Isaiah 35 says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a high way shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up to it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Now, you have to have a bit of a poetic, imaginary mind to fully grasp this kind of writing, right? If you're like me, you have a hard time with poetry. Just tell it to me straight. Just tell me the flower is pretty. I don't need ten stanzas to know that the flower is pretty. But there's a place for this kind of poetic, colorful, image-rich language. And a lot of what the Bible gives us in order to help us imagine the life to come has this dimension. It's meant to awaken our senses, our our longing, our imaginations, all of which things God has given us, given us as humans. And so we see here that the removal of all tears, mourning, pain, and death is like the dry desert. It's like the dry desert being all of a sudden filled with streams. Perhaps you've seen those images of that desert in Africa as the streams come in and all of a sudden it just blooms. And it blooms with flowers. And it... Rejoices in song. It is seeing the glory of God and having all of your fears and anxieties removed. It is like walking securely on the way of holiness, as Isaiah says there, with no threat of going astray. It is like being crowned with everlasting joy upon your heads. And many other images. So what do we do with all of this i've been saying the last few weeks that god has given us every bit of scripture because we need it there's some need or lack in us that each bit of scripture is connected to that that helps us we need these images these promises these visions we need to know that all of god's good creation will be renewed and we will live in it forever We will need to know that God is drawing near to us, that God will dwell among us, and that he will rejoice in us and we in him. We need to know, even now, that all pain and sorrow and loss and tears and death will be done away with. Those will be the former things. And we need to know this because it means that our lives right now are not defined by our comforts, or lack thereof, by our pleasures or lack thereof, by the ease of our life or lack thereof. Joy is coming. This means that suffering does not have the last word. Sin and evil does not have the last word. Our own sin and the guilt we feel does not have the last word. Hardships and weaknesses we experience do not have the last word. God, as we will read next week, is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And his last word, lasting for all eternity, is joy in his redeemed people. This isn't, a merely, this isn't merely a good thing out there in the future, kind of like that vacation that you know is coming. This is given to us now to reflect on and to live our lives in light of. And as we do, it changes us. Revelation again and again calls people to live with patient endurance. Having this sure hope of what God is doing and that God is on his throne even now, but this is what he is leading us to, gives us patient endurance. It gives us joy in sorrow. It gives us hope in the midst of a hopeless world. It gives us peace in the midst of a chaotic world. It gives us wisdom in the midst of a foolish world. It stabilizes us. It secures us. It keeps us going. So let's live our lives in light of this and use this as a, hopefully not just annual, but a reminder that this is given to us now that we might live our lives in light of it with hope. Let's pray.